listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. Today on the show, I'm speaking with Catherine Deves, a Sydney-based lawyer and mother who started speaking out in defense of girls and women's sport in around 2020, joining forces with Save Women's Sport. She ran during the 2022 Australian federal election as the liberal candidate for the seat of Warringah. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm really happy that we've finally gotten a chance to connect over the phone. Yeah, it's great to speak to you, Megan. I've been following you for quite some years, so it's a real honor to be speaking with you directly. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I definitely appreciate your courage. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if you can start, before we get into your courage, um, <laughs> I wonder if you can start by telling me a little bit about your background and who you are. Right. So uh, I'm an Australian lawyer. Uh, I live in a Oceanside suburb of Sydney. I've got three little girls, uh, which is why I have skin in the game when it comes to these uh, feminist debates. Uh, I grew up just outside of Sydney. I've got three younger brothers. I went to boarding school in Sydney uh, and university, and then I spent about six years in my 20s living in the United States, going to college, working for a a vineyard and traveling around. Uh, Then I came back to Sydney and continued to work in the wine industry and met my partner, uh, fell pregnant with my twins, and he was from uh, the area that I live in now, which is the Northern Beaches, and uh, that is where the electorate of Warringah is. And in my view, it is the best place in the world to raise children. So I've been there, I think it's 11 or 12 years now. Nice. Um, yeah. And and what's your political background? How did you decide to get involved in politics? So I have always had an interest in politics. Uh, my family history Uh, It goes all the way back to when Australia first became a federation and my great-grandfather was a framer of the Australian Constitution and the youngest senator in the first parliament. He came from Tasmania and was a constitutional barrister. Um, So I grew grew up with that family history. Um, My mother was raised in Canberra, which is our nation's capital, And the home that I grew up in, we had a document hanging in the hallway that is an original document signed by all the first parliamentarians. So I grew up walking past that, you know, numerous times a day. Um, And I've always been opinionated. (laughs) I've always followed the news. Uh, I did my law degree later in life. And My family comes from, uh, like, the Liberal Party, I suppose, is what you'd call the Conservatives here. It's nowhere near, say, the US Republicans. Uh, We're sort of more centre-right. But I voted for that party my whole life. And I tried to become involved in politics a few times, but because of children and and life uh, got in the way a little bit, um, I wasn't able to pursue it in the way that I wanted. So when I finally got my youngest off to school, I went and rejoined the party and in attending the uh, women's meetings, they said we need women to put up their hands to run. Uh, So so I did. And to my great astonishment, I ended up being selected as the candidate for Warringah uh, by the Prime Minister and the New South Wales Premier um, and another woman, uh, Christine McDivin, who was very high up in the Liberal Party, I honestly did not think that I would be selected as the candidate. Usually they have to have a plebiscite, which is when you will run against other people who want to be the candidate. Um, And essentially you run a campaign within your electorate with the Liberal Party members and they will vote. Uh, However, due to a whole lot of internal wrangling uh, in the Liberal Party, that didn't happen and I was chosen by this panel of three people. So for that reason I was termed a captain's pick. Um, and unfortunately, that meant that people in the party within my electorate uh, didn't want to volunteer or support the campaign uh, because they felt they'd been robbed of selecting the candidate. And, and while I appreciate that, it was uh, just yet another uh, hurdle that I had to try and overcome. 
uh, during the election. And as you mentioned, the Liberal Party in Australia is... Well, the Liberal Party in Australia is nothing like the Liberal Party in Canada, I don't think. Um, uh, the Liberal Party in Canada is supposedly our our center party, um, although I think that many people would call it a kind of center-left party. Our party system in Canada is essentially divided up into three parties, the NDP, the Liberal Party, and the Conservative Party. And those parties don't differ enormously politically um on a few on a few different issues they do but it's it's really nothing compared to the the democrat republican divide in the u.s um it's not as extreme it's not as polarizing i'm curious to know in australia um is there a notable left right divide or does it function kind of differently than that in politics it's certainly not like the united states where it's really deeply polarized here we have uh the liberals uh we have the labor party which would be more center left um and we also have the greens who currently hold the balance of power in the federal senate um, you also have independence, and we have more independence in the House of Representatives than I think we've ever had. I think we've got 16. So we've got uh, these women who are called the teals because the colour that they sort of branded themselves with is teal, uh, and they are independents, and I was running against one of them. Um, and they say that they're independents, but essentially they have, they're almost functioning like a political party. Uh, so things have changed, have changed quite dramatically here with those independents, but in the House of Representatives, Labor is now majority government, so the independents are almost irrelevant. But we have had um, uh, parliaments in years past where neither party held um, a balance of power and it came down to a couple of independents who then aligned with either the Labor or Liberal. Um, and there's also another more conservative party called the Nationals. Uh, so the Liberals and the Nationals are in a coalition and the Nationals are the Conservatives and the Farmers in particular. They really uh, look after the people out in rural and regional. I wonder if you've had any experience in the feminist movement. You know, you've always been political um, and you, of course, ran in the recent election um, for the Liberal Party, which, as you said, is sort of like a a center-right party. I wonder your, what your experience with um, feminism and the feminist movement has been, if any, or what your perspectives on the feminist movement have been. Well, even though I was a, a candidate for the Liberals, um, and I very much do agree with their values around freedom and equality uh, and so on, some of my ideas are quite progressive. You know, I voted for same-sex marriage. I have gay and lesbian people in my family who, I, who I'm very close to. You know, I'm pro, uh, pro-choice. Uh, you know, I'm not actually married to my husband. Uh, we never got around to it. Um, so in, in saying that I'm a conservative, I'm not really a true conservative in, in that regard. Um, there are some things that I agree with, like I believe in a constitutional monarchy, I don't really want to be a republic. So I'm kind of a bit of a mixed bag. But um, the Labor Party and Greens do not, they don't, they don't represent um, anything that I stand for. Um, but with respect to the feminist movement, so, I mean, I've always been feminist-minded. Uh, I do remember being in what we call divinity classes. I went to quite a strict religious high school Anglican high school and getting into an argument with another student who was a Christian um, with respect to abortion and the poor divinity teacher who was um, the reverend uh, who was probably in his 50s or 60s just didn't even know how to cope with these two 15-year-old girls going at it um, over abortion. Uh, I did do some women's studies when I went to University of Miami um, but it kind of just fell off the radar for me. It was mostly when I'd had my children. So I had three little girls and I thought I'd better go and brush up on my feminism. And to my dismay, uh, I saw the state that it was in uh, with the pro-prostitution, pro-pornography, 
you know, all this idea around, you know, the choice feminism. I am a woman. I have made a choice. Therefore, it's feminist and therefore I'm empowered. And I was just thinking to myself, how can being exploited in prostitution or how can stripping yourself naked and covering yourself in oil and dancing about on the internet mean that you're empowered? And that's when I came across radical feminism, which led me to feminist, feminist current. Uh, and then that led me to the whole trans debate. And uh, so I just spent uh, quite a few years following those debates online, uh, like many people anonymously, uh, not really engaging, just trying to get my head around exactly what was going on. And I was just horrified at the at the gaslighting and the undermining of the meaning of woman and the fact that we now had this movement of misogyny that was infiltrating all these spaces that women had so carefully carved out for themselves in order to participate equally in public life and they were being taken away from us and if people were standing up and speaking out like yourself Megan you know you were being vilified um, and shunned and kicked off social media platforms and silenced. And it was with regards to the sport that I decided to actually speak up and say something uh, because no one in Australia was at, at that time really doing it specifically for the sport. We didn't have an organised movement um, with respect to the sport and men, men playing in the women's category. And that's when I decided to put my head above the parapet. And at that time, I was still a law student. So I had started to understand that gender identity had already started infiltrating our legislation here at a federal and a state level. Um, and it had been done without any sort of, you know, public discussion or real media scrutiny. Uh, and it just, everything seemed to be ramping up here with the media and policy and law with respect to embedding that idea into, uh, like policy just across the board, into our educational institutions, into government institutions. Um, and much like Canada, we're, we're really behind in the battle compared to, say, the UK. Um, but here in Australia, our media uh, also like in New Zealand, is so captured, um, so enthralled to this this ideology that it's really difficult to speak out against it unless you go on platforms uh, maybe that are, you know, the Murdoch platform, so the Australian newspaper, a national newspaper covers this, um, also Daily Telegraph um, and Sky News. But by and large that is behind paywalls. So... Um, so we're still a few years behind the Northern Hemisphere on this debate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's unfortunate because in Canada and the U.S. in particular, it's really only been the right-wing media that's been willing to cover the fact that there is a legitimate debate. You know, the fact that some people do not agree that men can become women um, and who are talking about the problems with men competing against women in sport or boys competing against girls. Is that the case in Australia as well? Is there a, is there a, I'm not sure exactly what the media landscape is like there, but is there a right-wing media, a progressive media, a mainstream media that that's sort of taken a different approach to this issue of gender identity and women's rights? That's right. So you've got what we call the Murdoch Press. Uh, so that'd be Sky News, uh, the Australian newspaper, which is a very conservative newspaper, uh, and the Daily Telegraph, which is more of a, um, uh, I don't know, it's just a, not a broadsheet. What's, what's the word? But there's sort of one in, in Sydney, there's one in between called the Sydney Morning Herald, which is seen as a bit more oh, moderate maybe, but they've gone really far left. Well, you know, I've heard people refer to it as the Social Morning Herald now. Um, but we have the commercial TV stations, so 7, 9 and 10, they are very captured. And then the state media, which is ABC and SBS, they are very captured because they're signed up to uh, Australia's version of Stonewall, which is ACON. So if you've been following the debate over there, Stonewall's been getting into all the government departments, uh, including the BBC, and then imposing their view with respect to gender identity and LGBTIQ and obviously there are sanctions if 
they go off script and they get extra points if they embed the ideology into their programming and their internal policies. And ACON is doing the exact same thing here. So it's very difficult to get a balanced view. Uh, and even last night I was on Sky News um, talking about a few other issues, but it came up that our ODPP, which is the Department of Public Prosecutions here in New South Wales, uh, they prosecute the serious crime. They have adopted this guideline that's all about, you know, the pro-gender ideology language. It looks like it's been written by a, a first-year, you know, gender studies student at a third-rate online university. Uh, it, it's really embarrassing. It's it's convoluted. It's got conflicting advice. And I was asked for my opinion on that, and I said, you know, the, the end result of this is that we will have men going into women's prisons and they will be, you know, terrorising, raping and impregnating the women. I said that is happening here in Australia and it's happening overseas. And the person uh, who was opposing me on the panel just said that I was, I was unhinged and that this wasn't true. And I just think, you know, there's still, there's, there's still people here persisting and saying this isn't happening. And anyone who does even the most rudimentary Google search would see that this is an issue, UK, Ireland, Canada, the US. I mean, we know there's litigation afoot. We know there's been parliamentary inquiries and cases decided. And the guy I was sitting opposite, he's the, I think, the assist, uh, the deputy mayor of Melbourne, which is the second biggest city in this country. And he's sitting there telling me that it's not happening. Um so it's and then the uh, the host of the show didn't push back. So you know we're sort of left saying these things with all the evidence to back us up, and we're still being told that it's we're not right and and we're wrong and we're unhinged. So we're still in that space. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's incredibly frustrating. Um, in Canada, we've faced similar barriers, which is that. Uh, I mean, the government in Canada won't even talk about the issue, and the media in Canada mm. barely will. You know, I, I've barely been on the Canadian media to discuss these issues, and certainly few others have been, certainly not feminists. Um, I wonder what happened when you started to speak up about this. I know that you, you joined forces with Save Women's Sports, and that was in 2020, is that correct? Uh, yeah, so the women in New Zealand had already established themselves, yeah. Um, so I was put in touch with them actually uh, by a Senator Claire Chandler who did put forward a Save Women's Sports Bill um, and Senator Chandler has also been speaking up publicly. So there are people within the Liberal Party who are speaking up publicly but the party itself, this is not part of their official policy. Uh, but you do have... Um, certain senators who will call bureaucrats into Senate Estimates Committee and ask them questions like the um, Brendan, um, sorry, his last name escapes me right now, but he runs the Department of Health and Senator Alex Antic asked him what a woman was and he couldn't, he couldn't do it. It was extraordinary. So we do sort of have uh, individual senators who will stand up and say things. Um, but you know, none of none of the parties uh, have that as an official line yet. Mm -hmm. um, and did you, when you began to speak out, um, how were you how were you treated? You know, what was the the response? Right. Sorry, I didn't answer that. Um, well, with respect to the women's sport, I, I was again. We, well, we gained a following, a pretty modest following on social media platforms here. We were getting a little bit of coverage in, in the Murdoch press, uh, as I said. Um, I started to be invited onto Sky News. Uh, this is also when the pandemic happened. So I was working for a law firm but only on a casual, as-needed basis. So I found myself with extra time on my hands. So I started lobbying um, parliamentarians uh, making submissions to parliamentary inquiries, uh, trying to write articles and so on. And you get a little bit of pushback. Uh, but with sport, I think because people, particularly in Australia, you know, sports uh, sports very important to us. And we can, and 
Australians pride themselves on fairness, on, you know, giving everyone a fair go. And I think it's very obvious in the sports space uh, that this is really unfair. So broadly when I would get media coverage, it would usually be positive or neutral. There was a bit of hate, a bit of vile abuse, a few threats. Um, but nothing too concerning. A few things that I had to take to the police um, that were pretty awful. Um, but aside from that, it it was it was fairly well received. I mean, we're still getting talking heads over here who are banging on about diversity and inclusion and equality, uh, and saying to us that we're being unkind for not allowing men who claim to be women to play in women's sports. Um, even when they see those images, say, of Leah Thomas or Laurel Hubbard. Uh, and I think, like, when I was trying to co- connect with some parliamentarians and bureaucrats, you know, I'd just, I'd just be ignored at worst. Um, the ACON has a function called Pride in Sport and they lobby all the sports organisations to get the, um, the policy into place where gender identity is the category for sports um, categories rather than sex. And I did write to them and I got this ridiculous letter back just saying trans women are women. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I was feeling like the debate was starting to get some traction, definitely. And then when you decided to run um, in, was that in 2022? Is that correct? Uh, yes. So that was at the very beginning of the year, the first, I think it was, yeah, the second week of January And um, you, that you had to apply. Yeah. Okay. So when you decided to run, um, did you make this part of your platform, this issue of women's sport? The issue of women's sport had given me a public platform and it had risen me to to prominence to a degree uh, within the Australian media. Uh, However, that was not going to be a key part of my platform. Um, I felt that uh, with Claire Chandler's bill, that was going to solve a lot of problems should it have gotten through. Uh, Leah Thomas had happened. and there had been enough momentum, I felt, within that debate that uh, I was almost happy to pass it on to someone else and start talking about some other things because when you have been following the debate about, you know, trans and gender identity and, and feminism, it can be very uh, – it, it, I mean, sometimes you just want to move on from that and talk about other things. It can be quite consuming. Mm-hmm. Um and I was, I was ready to do that. And in putting my hand up for Warringah, it, it was something I'd always wanted to do. I had thought that maybe, you know, it might be better for me to do it in three years or six years. But when they said, you know, we, we want women to put their hand up now, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll just nominate and I'll see where it goes. Hopefully I can meet some more people in the party, uh, get to understand how things work a bit better um, and have a bit of a practice run. Uh, and obviously being a member of the Liberal Party, you have to run on their national platform. So um, I was looking forward to uh, really understanding what their policies were and how that was going to help the people in the electorate. And as I understand it, when you when you did run, you weren't really allowed to escape this issue and you were attacked quite viciously. Um, on account of your perspectives on gender identity and women's rights. Um, Can you talk a bit about what happened there? So when you become a candidate, they obviously they they can't force you to, but they strongly recommend that you remove any uh, accounts that you have on any platform. Um, because you are now the Liberal candidate, you're not talking as, you know, yourself or in whatever capacity you've had prior to that. So I took I took down my Twitter, I took down my Facebook, I did all of that. Um, however, unbeknownst to me, there had been a, a hacker uh, based in Berlin who had had a bot uh, grabbing each of my tweets as they posted. Um, 
and he had compiled a dossier of, of 6,000 tweets. Um, now, I I knew something as all this progressed, you know, at the time I only had about 3,500 tweets because half the time I'd post something and think, oh, that's not quite right. I might just need to fact check that again or that's got a grammatical error. I will just delete that and then rewrite it. Um, so that's how we managed to surmise that there was someone who'd been uh, tracking my Twitter account, uh, and then I had some people look into it further, and there was a list of 4,000 women with opinions like mine uh, that they track online. They had a whole manual on how to do this and how to dox us uh, and discredit us and get us kicked off social media platforms. So it what they were just waiting for the time um, to provide that dossier to someone in the Australian media uh, to to bring me down. And so that's essentially what happened. So when people were saying, oh, we found this in Wayback Machine, that's not true. My tweets did not get uploaded to Wayback Machine until a couple of weeks after the uh, the onslaught had started. Um, now, in my view, some of the tweets that I had made, I mean, obviously it's Twitter, you know, you're restricted in what you can say. Uh, I appreciate that some of those arguments are fairly complex and it is difficult to communicate it in a tweet. But what they did was they would just take certain words or certain phrases and that would just become the headline. And what astonished me was that they were not looking at any of the arguments behind what I was saying. They were just saying, oh, she said these words, these are horrible words, and then they make all these inferences and then that would be the headline and it was just repeated ad nauseum everywhere. Um, and Obviously, I, I couldn't respond. Um, as a candidate, a local candidate, you are allowed to do as much local press uh, as you like. Um, however, if it's going to be the national media, you need to run it through headquarters. Uh, and I had been advised it was best to just let it run and hopefully um, it would run, <laughs> run its course. Um, but in, in hindsight, I think that had I just been able to all the media were approaching me for comments. It was completely overwhelming. Um, we, we were completely unprepared uh, for, for that level of onslaught. I mean, I woke up one day and I was the second most reported on candidate after the Prime Minister. And, and it happened in about 48 hours. Um, and I couldn't get out there and say, all right, fine, I'll, I'll agree to speak to whatever platform this is. And people were asking me, well, we want to ask you about the trans stuff, but we also want to ask about your other policies and about you. Um, however, there were people on my campaign that, that were shielding me from that. Um, and and I didn't even see any of these inquiries. And sort of had I known that was the way they are approaching it, I would have fought harder to be able to go and speak to uh, to the media. Um, but as it stood, I just, I couldn't say anything. Oh, that sounds really frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder, I mean, were these mm, people who yes. were shielding me, were these people who were shielding you from speaking to the media doing so because they didn't want you to speak about the trans issue specifically? Or were they just following a blanket policy? Yeah, look, I don't know. I'm I'm just not sure about that. But I know that obviously, you know, they wanted to keep it on message. Um, so every day they would announce a new policy, you know, to do with the big ticket items like, you know, national security and the economy, which I completely understand. Uh, however, if I was going to go out there and talk about this this trans stuff, just because of the furor, I think, around it and the level of media interest it would have had the capacity to, in my view, to likely derail some of those uh, messages they wanted to send. So, you know, I mean, I was one candidate out of 150, so I was a, I was a team player. But I think with the fact that my campaign, it wasn't normal, it had been elevated to national prominence, it's, it probably, in hindsight, needed a media campaign um, that was going to allow me to address those issues instead of sort of continuing to treat me like I was just a normal local candidate. Mm -hmm. So how did those attacks affect you? Do you think that it had a notable impact on your campaign? 
That's it's kind of mixed. Uh, there, I had overwhelming support um, from all around Australia, the world. People sending me messages. I mean, so many messages from people saying they're afraid to speak out in their own lives, at their work. Uh, they're afraid of alienating friends and family. You know, all those stories that we hear. Uh, so many people that just told me to keep going. Keep speaking common sense. Uh, we see what they're doing in the media. We don't believe what they're saying about you. Um, but we're really glad to see someone having conviction on an issue and not backing down. Um, there were members of my own party who called for my disendorsement. Um, my opponent in the electorate, Zali Stegall, called for my disendorsement. Uh, she's one of the independent teals and was an excellent the first winter medal for Australia back in the 90s, a bronze medal. Um, and I thought of all the people in Parliament, uh, when I approached her several years ago, she would be someone who would appreciate how important it is to protect the female-only sports category. But she jumped on the bandwagon, even going so far as to say to parents who were raising concerns that they were transphobic in an interview. Um, so, yeah, I, I did have support, but then at this the flip side of that is the vile abuse. And quite quickly, um, the people who were around me said, stop looking at social media, stop looking at the media. It was, I mean, it's only now that I've been able to read some of the articles and the things that were said. And, I mean, some of it is just, it's just character assassination. It's just untruths. Um, and I had to, for my own mental health to be able to get up and go out on the what we call the hustings every day go out and speak to the ordinary people I couldn't really look at that and I had a lot of politicians um, from also opposing political parties um, a few people rang me just to say are you okay how are you going this is how I cope when I become the focus of you know such negative uh, media attention uh, so I did have support around me in that regard, um, but obviously I I did have that vile abuse and uh, death threats and, and rape threats and all the things that, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with, Megan. But what um, really upset me the most was when someone in the party, who, I, I don't know who it is, uh, leaked my nomination application form, and that is a 40-page document that you provide to uh, the party, it dis you disclose everything on that form, um, including information about your children, your family history, your relationship, your um, uh, finances, and so on. And and that was in the public domain. That was on Twitter. That was in the hands of the journalists who were attacking me the most. And it's one thing for me to have put my hand up, and it's another thing entirely, you know, for my husband's business to be exposed for my children's details to be exposed and who had um, personal references uh, also the party members who were nominators for my candidacy for their names and signatures to be out there uh, and some of them, you know, one friend in particular, you know, she's a the main breadwinner as a single mother and, and she's in the arts and if she had been exposed and suffered detriment because she was associated with me, I was beside myself because I thought this this is uh, – it, it has never happened before that it well, – to my knowledge, I've, I've been told no one's nomination application form has ever been leaked before. Um, I had my address on it, all that kind of thing, and that's when, um, you know, I said to the party, you, you have to do something. Like, we are now at risk You've put my children's safety at risk. I'm getting these threats. You have to do something. And that's when they provided uh, the 24-hour security, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. Yeah, they, they were really good uh, in that regard. But it was it was very difficult. And I said to my husband, uh, I think you should take the children and leave. Just leave. I don't want them to see me like this. Um, this is really hard. I was working very long hours, uh, and I just uh, – I, I just didn't want them to be exposed to what was going on. We had paparazzi outside the house uh, chasing the nanny's car on school pickup, uh, standing at the gate trying to provoke 
my husband into some sort of a, a response. Um, so to take a photo of him to put in the papers ostensibly, um, you know, chasing family members who live on the other side of the world uh, down the street and ringing their work. It was it was very intense uh, and very frightening. And, um, yeah, for that reason I sent my children away. So how long did that go on for? You know, how long did you have to send your family away until things sort of settled down? Uh, so they were gone for about two weeks and then – uh, you know, the children's school went back. You know, my husband, he's a, he's a tradesman. So if he's not working, we have no income. Uh, and he runs a business and he has subcontractors and, and so on, people who rely on him for their income. So we decided, we, and at that stage I had the security and we made some changes at home. Um, you know, we've spoken to the children's school. Uh, those we sort of put some security measures in place so they they came home um and then we had the 24 7 security uh with me and and in the house i'm curious to know i mean what do you make you mentioned uh a female athlete i think an olympian is that correct one of who 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 spoke out against you and was speaking in favor of so-called inclusion in sport. Um, And I'm sort of a bit baffled by any female athlete who doesn't advocate for other female athletes, you know, who doesn't advocate to protect women in sport. I wonder what you make of women like, you know, Megan Rapinoe, who who essentially said recently that she she really she said that women's sports aren't that important, you know, that there are more important things in life and in essence that girls and women should should have to compete against males because the feelings of those boys or men who are identifying as transgender was somehow more important than the feelings of the girls. That's an absolute betrayal of women and girls. And my three little girls play a number of sports between them. Why shouldn't they be entitled to the same opportunities and pathways to success that Rapineau and uh, Stegall, who's the uh, woman that you're talking about here in Australia, that they enjoyed? It's I, – I, I just cannot fathom it. Um the level of entitlement and unfairness in in have, having major benefit, you know, with Stegall, I mean, she's enjoyed professional success. She's now a parliamentarian. She likely wouldn't have been there if she didn't have name recognition because she's an Olympian. Uh, and then to turn around and say that, yeah, women's and girls' sports doesn't matter and they should just train harder or they should just suck it up and you're just being unkind and bigoted, you know, and then they turn around and, you know, with Stegel, she was saying, oh, I'm running on a platform of, you know, gender equality and being more kind and more inclusive. And I just thought that's utter hypocrisy. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, when I when I heard what Megan Rapinoe said, I was just I was just totally baffled because she purports to be fighting for equality, you know, fighting for women's equality in sport. She was fighting for what she believed were fair wages in women's soccer. And then she seems not to recognize, I mean, I can't tell if she's for real or not. I I can't imagine that you could on one hand fight for fair pay for women in sport and not understand why women are paid less than men in sport or why they get less funding or why they get less attention, why they're less supported. Mm. Well, that, Which is, you know, that they're different than <laughs> in many ways. Well, we had the, uh, the extraordinary um, outcome here with Cricket Australia. You know, the week that women got pay parity, they introduced their transgender <laughs> guidelines. So women finally get pay parity and in the same week, I think, or thereabouts, suddenly men are allowed to compete in the female cricket. It's like, well, what a coincidence. Um, 
so I just think it, it really comes down to that issue of, of equality and and fairness. And I I don't know. I don't know if they're afraid uh, to speak out. Sometimes I wonder if some of them might be being paid or or they're just, you know, they're fearful of losing their sponsorships. Um, does it come down to just a question of I don't want to be seen to be unkind? I don't want people to not like me. Um, you know, I, I'm incredulous if they sit there and and don't understand the issue. I mean, there's been enough discussion out there to know that there is a debate going on. And as Olympians uh, or, or elite athletes, they can't sit there and say that they can't see the, the biological differences between men and women and how that plays out uh, in performance advantages. I just, I don't, I, yeah, I'm Megan. I'm, I think about it a lot, and I'm just, I think maybe it's a combination of that, but it's very perplexing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you wrote recently about what's happened with Roe versus Wade being overturned, mm. um, and what's been strange about that debate, similarly, is that a lot of the women who are claiming to fight for abortion rights, to fight for reproductive rights, um, which of course is an issue that only impacts women, are denying that they know what a woman is. Yes, it's extraordinary. So all these groups that have, you know, quite happily busied themselves for the last, you know, have a better part of a decade talking about pregnant people and sanctioning women who are insisting on, you know, sex-based rights and proper terminology. And then all of a sudden they're talking about abortion and either pretending to know what a woman is um, or continuing down the path of referring to us as pregnant people or, you know, people who have the capacity to get pregnant or some other other nonsense. Um, and, like, in my, I've rejoined Twitter and I made a comment to one journalist who uh, spoke out against me during the campaign and she was discussing uh, about the women in the United States being affected by Roe v. Wade. Um, so I made a, a comment. I said, don't you mean, you know, womb carrier, person with vagina or a pregnant person and then proceeded to be dogpiled by thousands of people saying horrible things so I went oh well I'm just going to shut this down I'm going to go back and keep playing with my kids I don't really need to see that but it's like when you take that tactic of turning those words against them uh you get vilified but when it's someone like say Ricky Gervais who did it you know he's making 40 million dollars and and winning awards and having the most successful streaming show in in Netflix history um whereas same with Matt Walsh you know he's I know he's um, anti-abortion, but with asking the question, what is a woman? And receiving huge accolades and awareness and uh, undoubtedly income stream. Whereas if you're a woman, you certainly don't get that sort of treatment. I know, Megan, you probably feel the same way a little bit when you look at Jordan Peterson. I mean, I think he might even be a millionaire at this point. Um, And he's been sort of arguing the same things on this particular issue that you have. Um, But Mm, He's at least a millionaire, you know, like he's – He's made millions and millions and millions of dollars and, you know, he rose to prominence and became incredibly famous and incredibly celebrated because he sort of barely challenged gender identity ideology. I mean, he didn't stand up for women and girls for one second, although he claims to now. Um, You know, he challenged the our Canadian gender identity legislation on the basis of um, coerced speech. You know, he was concerned that it would impact uh, our free speech. And, of course, it did. Um, and, and force people to use, you know, preferred pronouns and call people Z and whatnot. Um, but, yeah, I mean, and as you say, these men, Matt Walsh, have totally, they've been celebrated and, and treated as though they're the only ones who have ever spoken up. And in the meantime, the women who have spoken up have been punished enormously and, and silenced and, and threatened and lost their jobs and lost their 
political parties and being ostracized from their communities and lost book deals and, and all sorts of things. Mm. And then they turn around and say, well, where are the feminists? You know, where are the women? And you think, well, we've been fighting this for quite some time, some people all the way back to the 70s, uh, way before my time um, in this debate. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, with respect to the the language around abortion, I mean, in 2019 they passed legislation here in New South Wales uh, where they took abortion out of the criminal code, the criminal, the Crimes Act, and um, made it a health issue. And this was driven by Alex Greenwich, who is an independent state MP. He is a gay male, so he has he will never be confronted with a, an unwanted pregnancy or a pregnancy that's gone awry. However, he was the one that brought the legislation forth, and it's pregnant person the whole way through. So, you know, for the women who'd fought for that here in Australia for many decades, it was a really bittersweet victory. Um, and then they tried to do the same thing with another piece of legislation recently uh, where they, I mean, the amending legislation just said omit the word woman and replace with person, and it was like 28 times in a row. Uh, it was the state Greens Party who were trying to push that through, and we managed to get some coverage there and um, we managed to get some coverage and uh, the bill didn't go through in the end. Um, but I think it's just ex extraordinary. It's like they're giving with one hand and taking away with the other. And I think to myself, like, what is the end point with all of this? Because we acquiesce to or, or, or you know, they have one demand met and it's like, well, what's next? Is it really that you want a world where sex is just not acknowledged at all and women, you know, I don't know, I mean reproduction is just completely mechanised and happens in lab, you know, happens in a lab um, and, and and women just aren't even a, a category unless you, unless you claim to be one because you're performing particular stereotypes. I, you know, I just don't want to think where this is going to end up. <laughs> Do you think that these women who, you know, for example, I just I watched a couple of clips today, you may have seen them or perhaps not, where, you know, so they're the the Senate Judiciary Committee um, held a hearing this week following the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And there were a couple of women who were asked, one of them was the, the president of the National Women's Law Center. Um, another woman was a Berkeley law professor, Kara Bridges, and, and, and the president of the National Women's Law Center, Fatima Gossgrave, I think her name is, um, she was asked to provide a definition of the word woman, and she could not, and Kara Bridges was asked why she used the phrase people with a capacity for pregnancy when she's talking about the impacts of abortion restrictions and bans. Um, and you know, why she refused to define abortion as a woman's issue. And she called the line of questioning transphobic and said that, you know, those kinds of questions resulted in the deaths of trans people. And these, again, these are the women who are supposedly fighting for women's reproductive rights. I wonder why you know, why do you think that these women really believe that it doesn't matter if we can define women or if we talk about pregnancy as something only females are capable of and therefore that, you know, abortion is only a women's rights issue? Do you think that that, that doesn't matter to them um, in this fight? Or, I, you know, I what do you think about all that? A few things. I mean, there's that famous uh, saying that, you know, a man will believe anything if his income depends on it. So I think you've probably got that level of self-interest. Um, also, the burden upon whom this falls. You know, if there's men going into homeless shelters, domestic violence shelters, it's not going to be the women who have professional jobs. It's not going to be the, you know, the middle-class women, I don't think, um, the women with university careers. It's going to be poor women and disenfranchised women and, and women who do not have agency and a voice. And, 
you know, maybe they just cannot put themselves in that other person's shoes or they just think that, oh, well, the burden's falling on those women. We don't really care about that. They should do that because it makes me look inclusive uh, and I'm, I'm virtue signaling uh, about how diverse and, and focused on equality I am. Um, but I think it's a really dangerous path if, you know, we're going down this this pathway where we've got this lack of vigilance with words in the in the legal system and in law and policy and when we have words that have long meaning and tradition you know being discarded uh by fiat and we're being told oh no this is the way forward and everyone's in agreement uh i think we're really getting into dangerous territory because words have meaning i mean i spent six years learning how to be a lawyer and you know there are case there's case law and there's uh, statutes where someone might have put a comma in the wrong spot or a word might have some ambiguity and the impact that that has on someone's life because of a decision um, can be immense. So I, I just maybe these women just don't think it through to the conclusion of, you know, when you put legislation in place, you should think through to what the worst possible actor will do if they interpret it in in a particular way. You have to sit there and you have to test it out. And if they sit there and go, oh, well, it might end up like that, but we don't think so, so it doesn't really matter. I mean, in my view, that's not good enough. You know, we, we need to consider those outcomes and we need to make sure that our legislation prevents those terrible outcomes from happening. And in, in my view, when we're just removing sex and replacing it with gender identity, you know, we're throwing those protections to the wind. As you know, recently global swimming and and rugby did ban males from competing against women in those sports. Um, Where does this fight stand in Australia? So with the world rugby decision, uh, Australian rugby did not adopt that policy. I was really pleased, to, like everyone, to see FINA actually stand up uh, and protect women's sports and the fact that they did it in such a way that they had, you know, a legal team, a science team, and they consulted the female athletes uh, and they looked at all the evidence um, and they had the woman uh, who, the, the retired Australian judge, uh, Annabelle Bennett, who wrote the Casa Semenya decision, um, who is a tribunal member of CAS. Uh, and is very high up in discrimination law here. She was behind uh, the legal panel for FINA. So I think that the guidelines they have there, are they wrote them in mind that they were going to have to potentially defend that in a court of law. Um, However, we did have one Australian athlete, Kate Campbell. She's a much decorated Olympian. She stood up and spoke very eloquently in defence of women's rights. and she did get support, but there were also other swimmers, uh, Olympians who came out against it, interestingly. And we had uh, the CEO of Sport Australia, Kieran Perkins, who's also a gold Olympian uh, swimmer. He used the words that, the, you know, the FINA policy and these policies that protect women are going to result in, quote, unquote, human carnage. So... You know, I I would like to put it to Mr. Perkins one day. There is no way that you would have won your golds in the 1500 men's swimming if you'd had to compete against a male who was doping and enjoyed a performance advantage of, you know, 8 to 12%, which is the same performance advantage that a male would have against a comparative female in swimming. Um, So we've still got bureaucrats here who are very uh, on side with trans inclusion. Um, you know, with the lib- like with respect to say legislation, we do have some parliamentarians like Claire Chandler who are standing up uh, with her Save Women's Sports Bill. Um, but by and large, you know, the, the public stance still seems to be uh, that they are they are pro-trans. I mean, a lot of our sports orgs are now signed up to policies that prioritise gender identity over sex, even going so far as to discuss, you know, access to change rooms and overnight accommodation, 
uh, and so on, and it's to be on the basis of your gender identity and if parents or female athletes raise a concern, um, the trans athlete is is protected by privacy law and it will be the people raising concerns who will be excluded. So, but having said that, we've there's been polling uh, that's been done here and overwhelmingly Australians do not agree with trans and gender inclusion uh, sports guidelines. They do want to see a female-only sports category. So the bureaucrats uh, and parts of the media are very out of step with what the people want. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's actually pretty common um, globally, uh, which is interesting. I think that the media and the politicians, you know, the institutions are not representing the views of the regular people on this issue. Um, I'm I'm curious to know what's what's next for you. Um, what are you working on right now? What are your plans politically? Um, what what are you what are you fighting on in terms of this issue of women in women's sports right now? So I'm taking some time after the election. Um, it, we were working sort of 18 hour days, and obviously, uh, what I went through was quite physically and also emotionally and mentally grueling. Um, so. And in amongst all of this, we've got school holidays. So I have just been spending a bit of time uh, like with my my children, my partner, uh, my friends who I didn't speak to for months. Um, And I have had some job offers in some various areas, uh, law uh, and policy. Um, I have been speaking to Sky News, um, uh, doing some commentating there. Uh, so at this stage, I'm a little bit um, uncertain. I'm still a member of the Liberal Party. I still want to remain involved there. Uh, we currently have the, the Labor Greens government, so we're probably looking at them being in power for, well, obviously this term, potentially another term, um, and, but I'd still like to remain um, involved with the Liberal Party. So I haven't said yes or no to anything yet, Megan. I'm I'm just I'm trying to figure out what my next step should be. Um, yeah, and with respect to the women's movement, you know, there's a lot of work to do here uh, in Australia. Um, there's a lot more people who are engaged in the debate, though, compared to when I spoke up publicly a couple, even just a couple of years ago, um, and people from all across the political spectrum. I mean, I sat on a panel up in Brisbane, and the diversity on the panel amongst the women was extraordinary. Uh, you know, we had a a Maori woman, uh, we had a woman who was Indian Muslim conservative, we had an evangelical Christian, we had myself, you know, a separatist radical uh lesbian um so um there's a really broad spectrum of people who are now uh fighting uh to protect the rights of women um and i think you know having three little girls and seeing that there's still quite a lot of work to do i'd definitely like to still uh, be involved in in some way there uh, but I'm not really sure at this point, Megan. Maybe maybe we can talk in six months and I might have a clearer idea of what the next mm-hmm. few years will look like for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fair enough. Um, well, well, thank you so much for all your work on this issue and for uh, being courageous and speaking up and for continuing to speak up despite everything that you've endured as a result. And thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today. It was really nice to connect with you. Yes, you too, Megan. Thank you so much for your time and thank you to the listeners. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at feministcurrent, or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libsyn, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current Podcast anywhere you like to listen. iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Spotify, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. We really appreciate that. Feminist Current is produced and hosted by myself, Megan Murphy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.